chapter 8. Would you do that, Romans chapter 8? This is Father's Day today. I want to talk to you about a father. Like other fathers, he cares deeply for his children. He loves them, delights in them, is willing to sacrifice for them. But unlike other fathers, he's never selfish, short-tempered, unforgiving. He never sets a bad example, never says, do what I say, not what I do. The father I want to talk to you about is, if you haven't already guessed, God. God is a father. God is the father, as the Apostle Paul tells us, from whom all fatherhood gets its name. He's the first father. The idea of fatherhood is derived from him. See, he's not father because he's in some ways like our human fathers, Human fathers are sometimes fathers because they're in some ways like him. We're made in his image. He's not made in ours, which is something we've tried to do over and over again, but we're never going to succeed at that. To know God as your father, okay, now let's get personal. Take this in. To know God as your father is absolutely essential to your joy and success in life. It's not enough to know him as your judge, as many people do. It's not even enough to know him as your redeemer. Great blessing, though that is. To know yourself as blessed and beloved, you must know God as your father or as your Abba, to go even further. Abba is a word of intimacy and respect. It was often the first word a child in an Aramaic speaking Jewish family would say. Abba, Papa, we say. Children called their fathers by that name. Occasionally, students would call their teacher by that name. But Jesus called God by that name. And he taught us to do the same. That was unthinkable in Jewish religious culture. It was too informal. It displayed what seemed like an arrogant lack of respect for the Almighty. At least that's how people would have felt. It seemed like pure chutzpah to call the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, the God of Jacob, to call him Papa. The Old Testament did occasionally use father terms to describe God, but always in reference to the nation of Israel as God's son. Jewish teachers might on occasion refer to God as a father in heaven, a heavenly father, but to address him directly as Papa seemed like the height of presumption. And it would be, except for Jesus. In Islam, and Jim referred to this this morning, the reticence to call God Father goes much deeper. Most Muslims do not use Heavenly Father as an address for God. One contemporary Islamic scholar calls the doctrine of the fatherhood of God, and I'll quote, a false and dangerously misguided idea. Such a description of the one true God constitutes in Islam a manifest falsehood and an act of blasphemy. Call God Father, that's blasphemy. And it's the one sin Blasphemy that Allah Most High has declared that he would not forgive. See, Muslims know God as the all-compassionate, the all-merciful, 
the absolute ruler, the source of peace, the victorious, the guardian, the opener, the all-knowing. There are 99 names for God in Islam. But not one of them is Father. And that's sad. It's sad because a person cannot really know who he or she is without knowing God as his or her father. Like the prodigal son in Jesus' great story, we only come to ourselves when we rise and go to the Father. But it's just as hard for us to do that as it was for the prodigal. As George MacDonald put it, the hardest, gladdest thing in the world is to cry to God, Father, from a full heart. And like MacDonald, I would help whom I may to call thus upon the Father. One of the things that makes it hard for us to call God Father from a full heart is that our earthly dads have given us the wrong idea of what a father is. Some of us, some of us didn't want to be around our dads, at least at times. It wasn't safe to be around them. Some of us had dads who were never satisfied, no matter how hard we tried. Others had dads who were angry all the time and mean. Some had dads who were abusive, either verbally, verbally or physically or sexually. Father is a word that evokes ugly images and painful feelings for some people. They can hardly think of God as father. To do so would be to associate God with the anger and the criticism and abuse that they grew up with as children. If that's the case for you, it's time for change. It's time to see that God is the Father you need and want. Whether you're a child or whether you're an old person, your Heavenly Father's love for you, look, it's not conditioned on your merit, and it's not conditioned on His mood. He doesn't forget His children. They're not eclipsed by His job or His hobbies or His interests. He has your interests at heart. He has you in his heart to talk to him as your father, your Abba, to be proud of him, to know yourself safe in his care. These are necessary to your personal well-being and your happiness as a follower of Jesus. You must know God as father. The Apostle Paul understood that Jesus made it possible for us to experience the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, to experience him as our Father. Because of Jesus, it is not presumptuous to call God Abba. In fact, because of what Jesus did for us and what the Spirit is doing in us, it's even natural for us to turn to God and call him Abba. We do it instinctively. Let's read Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. Let me read that for you. You can follow along. We'll put it on the, the screen or follow in your Bibles. Therefore, brothers and sisters. <clears throat> the Greek is actually brothers. But therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. Literally, we are debtors. But it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. 
For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we also may share in his glory. Now, the first thing I want to notice about this passage that I see when I come to this passage is this is part of a bigger passage. It fits like a puzzle piece into its setting. And that's especially clear when you come to it in the original language, which starts off something like, wherefore, therefore. And Paul's using the language of logical progression. He is prosecuting an argument. And in this passage, he's reaching a conclusion. In order to see where he's going, it'll help us to see where he's been. This fits into a larger passage. He's been reminding these Christ followers of the amazing, revolutionary thing God did by sending Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus really did change everything. Because of Jesus' death, we who trust in him have been freed from condemnation and have received his spirit. That's the beginning of chapter 8. And it's phenomenally important. We couldn't call God Abba apart from this. We wouldn't have the right to. So Paul's been reminding his readers that Christ has given himself for us, that God has given his spirit to us, and that that has done something in us, something that would be impossible otherwise. It has made us children of God, of the Almighty, his kids. Now maybe you're thinking, well, isn't everyone a child of God? And the answer is, not exactly. In a sense, you can say that. God has given life to everyone. He's the father of all spirits, as the author of Hebrews puts it. And in that sense, everyone is a child of God. But in the fuller, richer sense that we have here, that we share his DNA, so to speak, that we belong to him, are his heirs, have a claim on him, a child's claim on his father's love and help, That is only true of people who have received the Spirit of Christ. See, it's no coincidence that when Paul speaks of Christians using the word Abba, it's always in connection with the presence of God's Spirit in their lives. It's the presence of God's Spirit that makes us his children. His Spirit is called the Spirit of Adoption or the Spirit of Sonship. His Spirit gives us eternal life. That's the life of our Abba in heaven. So Paul says it's those who are led by the Spirit of God who are the sons of God. Now you may think, sons of God? Now that that sounds like a very insensitive thing to say in our gender-conscious world. Why didn't Paul say the sons and daughters of God? Are women left out of this? Not at all. But... We have to come to this from the cultural setting in which it was written. In the first century, it was the son 
who received the lion's share of the inheritance. It was the son who was the recipient of honor. Daughters might not receive any inheritance. Normally they didn't. Daughters were second-class citizens. When Paul says that those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, he's saying there are no second-class citizens in God's family. All of us, men and women, who are led by the Spirit, receive the Son's inheritance. All of us, men and women, are endowed with the Son's honor. So the critical phrase was that there was who are led by the Spirit of God. What does that mean? How do I know if I'm being led by the Spirit of God? I mean, that sounds pretty mystical, doesn't it? What does that mean? I might picture people going off into a trance or receiving spontaneous promptings to do unusual things. Maybe go off to see a friend on the spur of the moment or to witness to some stranger, give money to a panhandler just because of a sudden strong feeling. Is that the kind of thing it means to be led by the Spirit? Well, let me say that the Spirit might lead a person and has led people in any of those ways. But it wasn't one of those ways that Paul chose to highlight. The characteristic trait, the giveaway, if you will, of the Spirit's leadership in a person's life is that that person puts to death the misdeeds of the body. That's verse 13. The word translated misdeeds is the Greek word praxis, the practice, the characteristic behaviors of a person. We bring into the Christian life with us a distinctive praxis, one that is often sinful and soul-deadening. That praxis has been formed by years of self-protective behaviors, and it prevents us from living the life that God intends for us. It keeps us from becoming our true selves. And time and time again, it leads us away from God, not towards him. When we believe on the Lord Jesus and God gives us his spirit, his spirit goes to work changing our praxis. The spirit enables us to put to death the things that hinder us from becoming our true selves, that trip us up, that keep us from following Christ. The Spirit leads us to do that. He doesn't do it for us. He's not going to do it without us. But he will lead us. Never forget that in Christ, God has afforded you the remarkable dignity of taking part in your own formation. It's astounding. Sometimes people claim that they're led by the Spirit because they've had an, an experience. Maybe this powerful feeling came over them. Or they entered a trance, or they've spoken in an unknown language. But those things are not, in and of themselves, evidence that it's God's Spirit that's leading a person. For example, Muslims speak in tongues over history in different places. Muslims speak in tongues. So did Mormons. Having these strong experiences is not necessarily evidence that it's God's spirit that's leading. The incontrovertible evidence is putting to death the misdeeds, the praxis of the body. The spirit of Christ and the presence of sin do not rest easily with one another. 
When the Spirit leads sinful behaviors, those patterns in our lives are dealt with. You know, in a way, it's funny. We think that I I, I really feel like I'm God's child when everything's going fine. When I really feel spiritual. When I'm enjoying my time in prayer and in Bible reading. Do you know what? I'm not sure it works that way. In this context, we know that we're God's children. The Spirit of God testifies with our spirits that we are the sons of God. When we're struggling to overcome ingrained sin, when we're submitting to God, in verse 13, putting to death the misdeeds of the body, it's in the middle of all of that that we cry, Abba, Abba. We shout to our Father because we need him. We turn to him for help. I mean, think about it, dads. When do your kids cry, Daddy? Isn't it usually when they need you? Sometimes they'll cry, Daddy, just because they want you to watch them. And that's a beautiful thing. Daddy, watch me. Daddy, watch me. But more often they cry, Daddy, because they're scared or they're hurt or they're getting beat up. We turn to our Father for the same reasons. We're scared. We're hurt. Our sins are beating us up. And it's in those moments when we cry, Abba, that we know we're his children. Now, I said this passage is part of a bigger passage and referred us back to the beginning of the chapter. But that bigger passage fits into an even bigger story, the larger biblical story. Everything ties together. Well, Karen and I were in Israel. We had a Jewish guide who at one point pulls out a set of maps. And the principal map he showed us first was of Jerusalem in David's time. And then he flipped over a clear plastic sheet that had on it an outline of the temple from Solomon's time. And it fit right onto that earlier map. And then he flipped over another sheet that showed the city walls and buildings in King Herod's time. Each new addition fit onto it. And it made sense in the light of that earlier map. Before we go further in our text, we need to do something like that. We need to lay this text over the top of the Old Testament story that preceded it. That's exactly what Paul and the other New Testament writers are doing. They are fitting what they're writing, this information, onto the Old Testament story. And that's the way it is here. Paul has been thinking about, in the back of his mind, he has this picture, how God treated Israel. And and when we get to chapter 9, he's going to go specifically to talk about that. How God brought his son, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt and then led him by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He led Israel and now he leads us. Israel was discouraged and tired and scared and wanted to return to Egypt, go back to slavery. But God's spirit would not lead Israel back into slavery again. He's not the spirit of slavery, nor will he lead us back into slavery again and to the fear that always accompanies it. You see how all of this fits? When Paul uses the word Abba as an address for God, he always writes about it in connection with the spirit. And in those same texts, he also writes about slavery. He is writing over the top of the story of how God made Israel his son and freed him from slavery and led him into his own place. 
and the Galatians passage where Paul uses the same terminology. He even uses Egypt as a symbol of slavery. As with Israel, so with us. The Spirit, Paul says, will never lead us back into slavery. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, the 2 Corinthians 3.17, there is freedom. Sometimes we think, and this is, a, I think, a huge mistake in our approach to our spiritual lives. We think of the Spirit as overwhelming a person so that he or she does something completely foreign to his or her nature or ability. So that person enters a trance or speaks in a tongue or prophesies about hidden things. Now, I'm not saying that that can't happen, but that's not what usually happens when the Spirit leads us. A person led by the Spirit is not forced to do things either by internal passions or external powers. He or she is liberated to do things, the things Christ himself would do. We must keep in mind that one of the fruit or the results of the Spirit's presence in our lives is self-control. When a person has the Spirit of Christ, or perhaps I should say when the Spirit of Christ has a person, Paul actually deals with both those things in Romans chapter 8, that person does not have less control over his life. He has more. He or she is able to do things that would be impossible without the Spirit. So, when we're honest with ourselves, when we face up with the things in our lives that don't belong there, that are not part of our true selves, when we're dealing with those things, putting to death the misdeeds of the body, crying out to the Father, Abba, sometimes Abba, help, sometimes Abba, watch. That's when, verse 16, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. And that's why when somebody ignores some sin in his life that God has pointed out to him, he loses that sense of, I belong to God. You can't have it both ways. I'm not saying he ceases to belong to God. I'm saying he loses that sense. When the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God, that is the sweet spot of the Christian life. And something every one of us needs to experience and even to live in. Our circumstances at the time may be pleasant or they may be distressing. We may be struggling with something in our life that has no business being there, or we may be attempting to do some good thing that scares us to death. We may have lots of friends, or we may find ourselves alone and forgotten. But whatever our circumstances, when the Spirit testifies with our spirit that God is our Abba, and we are his children. We know that we're going to be all right. It's then when the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we know, as Dallas Willard put it, that we never need be anxious or afraid no matter what comes. The basic idea is that this world, with all its evil, pushed to the limit with what Jesus went through, is a perfectly good and safe place for anyone to be, no matter the circumstances, if they have only placed their lives in the hands of Jesus and his Father. We never have to do what we know is wrong. We never need be afraid. You know what? Jesus practiced what he preached. Even as he was tortured and killed, 
And so of multitudes of his followers, Jesus lived and died and rose again in the sight and care of his Abba Father, and he knew it. Do you live as though you have an Abba in heaven? Do you know that you're safe because you're in his care? Do you believe Jesus when he says that our Heavenly Father knows what we need before we ask? Or do you panic and forget? Do you trust your Abba to provide you with the things that you need as Jesus promised he would? Do you know that even death cannot separate you from the love of your Abba in heaven? Jesus lived that way, and he taught us to do the same. He was still living that way when on the cross he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He knew his Father would take care of everything. Yes, there might be, and there will be pain. Unexpected things, at least unexpected by us, are going to happen. We'll go through things that we'd rather not go through, including death. But our Father sees, knows, and he cares. He's there for his children. We can know that. We can live in the light of that knowledge. When his spirit testifies with our spirit that we're his children. All right, let me bring this to a close by saying a word to parents. And particularly to dad, since this is Father's Day. Dad, your principal job as the father of a child, and it doesn't matter whether that child is an infant now or a teen or a grown man or woman, your principal job is to help him or her cry to God, Father, from a full heart. You can help or hinder your child in that by the way that you relate to him or her. So are you helping or are you hindering? problem is many of us have hindered and it feels like it's too late we've made it harder for our kids to know God is father we've lost our temper our attention has been somewhere else we've resented the time that our kids have taken away from our work or our leisure and without knowing it we've been teaching our kids that that's what fathers are like and that's what the heavenly father is like If you've made it harder for your kids to joyfully and confidently call God Father, apologize to them. Your child will never forget that. If you go to your child and say, you know what? The thing most on my heart is that you know God is your Father and that he loves you, and I think I've made it harder for you, and I want to ask your forgiveness, your kid will never forget that. It will have power in his or her life. Ask for their forgiveness. Tell them that God is a better father than you've ever been, but that you intend to be a better father as well. And tell God that too and ask him for help. But the point here is not simply to be a better father. It's to be a better follower. I want you to get on board and follow Jesus with all your heart and mind. The most powerful thing any of us can do to help another person, whether a little child or an adult appear, is to cry to God, Father, from a full heart. We can't give our kids what we don't have. And this is the one thing we absolutely must give our kids.
So let's ask God for that grace right now. Let's pray. God of all grace, Abba, hear the prayers of our hearts. Make these things, all things, work together for good. We trust you to do this in Jesus' good name.